Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Hey, we welcome you to the Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel, we have a lot to talk about today, uh, starting with a couple of big Supreme Court decisions that came down recently. Yes, there were two very interesting decisions that just came down this past week, and one of them is quite good, and the other is somewhat bad. And so let's have the bad news first. The bad news was the court's decision in the June medical case. This is a case out of Louisiana. It involved a Louisiana law that put some restrictions on abortion clinics, restrictions that most of the abortion clinics in the state, I understand, would not be able to meet. So the practical effect of this law would be to restrict abortion to only one or several clinics that could meet the restriction. Essentially, the restriction said that no doctor could perform an abortion unless he had hospital admitting privileges at a hospital within 30 miles of his abortion clinic. And the reason for the rule was so that in case the woman having the abortion developed some medical problems and needed to be hospitalized, that doctor could take her to the hospital and could treat her there in the hospital's facilities. Well, the Supreme Court struck that rule down by a 5-4 margin. The four liberal justices were the ones that simply wanted to strike it down, and then the four conservative justices, Justice Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, voted to uphold it, and that meant, as has been the case in the last year a couple times now, Justice Roberts, the chief justice, wrote the concurring opinion with the ones that wanted to strike it down, which decided the case. But I think we need to understand something here. This is being told by many as though this is a case that really means Roberts is now firmly in the pro-abortion camp and that any prospect of overruling Roe versus Wade are simply not going to happen unless we get a change in the court's personnel. I don't think we have to read June Medical that way, especially if you read the way Roberts wrote his opinion, that there had been a case several years ago, the Hellerstedt case out of Texas, in which you had some similar restrictions on an abortion clinic. And the Supreme Court, by a 5-4 margin, this is back when Kennedy was still on the court and Kavanaugh was not, the court, by a 5-4 margin, said that that was an undue burden upon a woman's right to an abortion, and so they struck it down. Now, Justice Roberts sided with the four dissenters in that case. Now, the interesting thing about that is that people think that, well, that means that Roberts switched at that time, he sided with the dissent saying these regulations in Texas were okay and shouldn't have been struck down. Now in Louisiana, he is siding with the liberals saying that it should be shut down. Roberts has sold out. Roberts has changed his mind. And if you read Roberts' opinion carefully, I don't think that's what it means. What it means, I think, is that he's saying that he is bound by the precedent 
in the Texas case. Now, you're not always bound by precedent when you're on the Supreme Court. When you're on the Supreme Court, you know, we normally follow precedent unless there is good reason not to, but there are over 300 cases in the history of the United States Supreme Court in which they have overruled past precedents, one of those being the Plessy versus Ferguson case, which upheld segregation so long as it was separate but equal, and this was overruled in the Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954 when the court said that in the area of race relations and schools that separate facilities are inherently unequal. So courts can strike things down. The problem was in this case, neither side, the clinic that wanted to perform abortions nor the state of Louisiana, neither side was arguing that the undue burden test should be overruled or that Roe versus Wade should be overruled. And since they weren't arguing that, Robert says, I don't think I have a right to make that part of my opinion when neither side has asked for that. And so he said that since neither side has asked that Roe versus Wade be overruled, I'm not going to do that. I'm simply going to have to decide this in accordance with the precedent of Hellerstedt, which I disagreed with at the time, but now it's precedent and I have to follow it. And so he held that like the regulations in Texas that the court had struck down on Hellerstedt, the court would have to strike down these regulations in Louisiana as well. I don't think this means that when a case comes to the court directly challenging Roe versus Wade, that the court will feel like it has to stand with Roe versus Wade and strike down laws like that. We have several states where laws have been passed that would prohibit abortion in any case where you can detect a fetal heartbeat, which can be detected as early as, I believe, 28 days after conception. The heart is actually beating earlier than that. And those cases are coming before the court. And then we have an Alabama case in which we have simply said that no abortions may be performed at all at any stage, with a couple exceptions, the life of, and health of the mother. And anyway, so both of these cases, when they get to the Supreme Court, they will be a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. And I don't think this necessarily means that we have lost Roberts as a possible vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so I, I don't think this decision hurts us as much as it might seem at first. I wish we'd won it, but, and the foundation filed an amicus brief in support of the state of Louisiana in this case. But anyway, we didn't, but I don't think that means things are hopeless. Anyway, that was a bad decision, but not as bad as it's being made out in the media to be, and not as much of a victory for the pro-abortion forces as they're making it out to be. And by the way, I do say pro-abortion. You will not hear me using the term pro-choice because the baby doesn't get a choice. Well, let's move on to another case. And this case we could regard as a victory. And this was in the state of Montana, case to the United States Supreme Court, again decided by a 5-4 vote, and this time Chief Justice Roberts voting with the conservatives. And this case involved, first of all, there had been a Montana law that provided for a way that tax money could be used to help parents send their children to 
non-public schools. And that included not only secular private schools, but religious private schools as well. And the vast majority of private schools in Montana are religious schools. Well, the Montana Supreme Court basically struck that program down, saying that anytime you are giving aid to send children to a religious school, that is a violation of the Establishment Clause and also a violation of a provision of the Montana Constitution that said that you can give no aid to any sectarian that is religious institution. Well, this was challenged in the United States Supreme Court on the position that, first of all, that position of the Montana Constitution was in violation of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. In other words, Montana can prohibit that, but if that conflicts with what the federal constitution says about free exercise of religion, then the Montana provision has to give way. And Chief Justice Roberts, along with Justice Alito and, again, the four conservatives, said that the Montana Supreme Court needs to be reversed because as they have constituted, the law in Montana would discriminate against religion. What it would say would be that, yes, we have a program by which we will aid you in sending your children to a private school, but if you want to send your child to a religious school, that doesn't qualify. Robert said, what you have done is you have expressly discriminated against churches that have religious schools, and you have disqualified them from this program solely on the basis that they are religious institutions. That is discrimination against religion, and it violates the free exercise clause of the Constitution. And there are several ways I won't go into right now that I think this decision could have gone a little bit further than it did, like expressly expressly striking down that provision of the Montana Constitution, but it did say that that provision of the Montana Constitution and similar state constitutions cannot be used in a way that violates the free exercise rights of religious people. So that's a good decision. Okay. We will pick up just the other side of this break. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Again, we welcome you back. This is Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, you have a very interesting topic and a very timely topic that we're going to delve into now. And it's, it's a phrase that I think is on a lot of people's minds, but they may not really be sure what it means. Tell me what you have in mind. Well, I thought it would be good for us to talk about this word that is being used so much today, woke, and what we mean by that term. A lot of people hear that, woke. Well, what does it mean? Does it mean I just woke up from a nap or what? And, you know, normally in Constitution Classroom, we've been going through the Constitution. We just finished the self-incrimination clause of the Fifth Amendment, and we were going to talk about the due process and confiscation of property clauses of the Fifth Amendment as well. But I think it's important that we put those on hold for 
this week, and we look to what is going on out in our streets right now, and with this term that is being used, awoke, and so on, and we hear that term, people wonder, well, what does it mean? And essentially, when that term is being used in the far-left community today, you could probably define it as being alerted to injustice, particularly injustice that results from racism. And they would say it's, in that sense, being enlightened, having a greater social awareness, having a greater concern about injustice, and maybe even adopting a particular ideology about social justice. Opponents would say it means being indoctrinated with a false ideology. And, you know, the scriptures talk about being awakened. We see that term repeatedly there. Isaiah 51, 17, awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. 52, 1, awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. But there are counterfeits to many things like this, too. In fact, we're told by Paul in 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 11, that no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. You know, here in a culture like we've had here in the United States, if Satan were to appear in this culture with horns and a tail or as a monster with six heads and so on, we would be revulsed. He would turn people away. But if he transforms himself into something that seems very attractive, then he can be very dangerous. And we're told further that because Satan is transformed into an angel of light, therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. And so the term woke is being used as being alerted, having a raised consciousness toward social justice. But what does it really mean? First of all, I'm going to try to go into some of the background of this, and I'm compressing years of study and theology and philosophy into several 10-minute sessions here. But this woke ideology is probably not what motivates the average person out there in the street who is either sincerely protesting or else engaged in some kind of violence. But I think it does motivate some of the leaderships behind both Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And I guess one of the first things we would need to understand to see where they are coming from with this would be the idea that Truth is subjective rather than objective. Now, to understand the difference between objective and subjective truth, let's start out by saying that objective truth means that something is either true or false regardless of what we believe. For example, 2 plus 2 equals 4, even if I get it wrong on a math test. Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit, even if I, I thought it was 25 degrees or 35 degrees. And Columbus came to America and landed in 1492. And in other words, those things are objective fact. Now, then there's subjective truth that Columbus came for good purposes. That perhaps is subjective. You can argue it back and forth, and there's, there are opinions there. If I say ice cream tastes good, 
Well, that's a matter of opinion. I think most people would agree, but that is opinion. If I say blue is a prettier color than red, again, that's a matter of opinion. And so that is subjective truth. Now, those in the new age and those who are adopting this woke idea would say that all truth is subjective. And this goes back to postmodernism, new age. One of the postmodern thinkers, Isaac Bonowitz, used to say that there are an infinite number of universes of truth out there, and you can pick whichever one you want to live in. It's kind of like channel surfing on your network there that you surf all these channels, pick out the one you want and live in that. And if you don't like any of the ones you see, you just create your own, live in that reality. So in other words, the idea that all truth is subjective rather than objective, that means then that we understand truth by experience. And so facts are not all that important. Statistics are not all that important. If somebody says to you out in the street there that the police oppress black people and brutalize black people, if you were to give that person all sorts of statistics about the number of policemen who are black, about the number of people who are shot by policemen, the percentage of whites versus the percentage of blacks, the percentage of whites versus the percentage of blacks who commit violent crimes and the like, that wouldn't carry a whole lot of weight with them. That wouldn't mean anything because that's not the way they arrive at truth. To them, truth is my experience. So what it comes down to is this. If you can't understand why some think saying all lives matter is racist, but saying black lives matter is not racist, or if you can't understand why some are outraged about a white policeman killing a black suspect, but utterly unconcerned about rioters killing black policemen and looting black-owned businesses, if you can't understand why some people demand that you listen to them, but they refuse to listen to you because you are white and therefore you have no understanding of what being black is all about, never mind that by the same reasoning, since they have never been white, they can't understand what being white is all about. Well, if you can't understand why people are saying that, then you need to understand, not agree with, but understand woke theology. And yes, I'm calling it theology because there is a sense in which this woke idea is really a form of religion with its own idea of sin, its own idea of salvation. Some of it starts with Marxism. Marxism, as we know, is pure materialism, and it is based on Darwinian evolution, a struggle for survival. And the Marxists see that struggle for survival as being through economic classes, the rich, the bourgeoisie, which really means the middle class, actually, versus the poor, the proletariat. In fact, Karl Marx even wanted to dedicate the English version of Das Kapital to Darwin because he said, Darwin has given me a biological basis for the class struggle. And I, I should add that Marx, or Darwin, denied or declined the honor. You could say that Marx was a Darwinist, but Darwin was not a Marxist. However, as we go on from this, we find that 
an idea develops in the early 1900s called cultural Marxism. That We see that especially at the Frankfurt School in Germany, which moved to Geneva in the 1930s and from there to a lot of American universities. And the saying is that America is the elephant's graveyard to which old German heresies go to die. Germany goes on to a new kind of heresy, but cultural Marxism said that the conflict here, the, the conflict is not between the rich and the poor, it is between culture, between ideologies. And we'll explain a little more about that as we come back from the break. Once again to Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I love that you are talking about uh, this wokeness and, and social justice spirit that seems to be sweeping across America. And I especially appreciate it in the last, seg- in the last segment you were alluding to uh, cultural Marxism, which I, I wish more people understood that concept better. Where would you like to pick up from? Well, let's pick up with cultural Marxism, as we saw before, this had some of its beginnings with the Frankfurt School in Germany and spread from there to Geneva and to the United States. And they emphasized the need to influence the culture because the warfare that is going on, the Darwinian struggle for survival, they said is not just or even maybe primarily between the rich and the poor, but it's between cultures and classes. And They saw the need to influence the culture through academia, through the media, through entertainment, through political institutions and the like. And they strongly influenced many of the new left radicals back in the 1960s. And some of us recall back in the 1960s when you had the Students for a Democratic Society, the new left and other groups like this that were there taking to the streets and protesting and sometimes destroying and senses somewhat reminiscent of what we're seeing today. And then as we move into the 70s, these start to die down, and we see a wave of conservatism in the country in the later 70s and the 80s, the Reagan Revolution, as it was called. And those who had been the 60s radicals, well, some of them decided, well, maybe practicing capitalism and making money and enjoying the fruits of our labors, maybe that's not such a bad deal after all. But others of them went on to become college professors and deans of universities and so on. And so they influenced a new generation with their ideas. And what we are seeing on the streets right now is therefore, in some sense, a reminiscent of the progenitor back in the 60s. And Anyway, what they're claiming to do when they try to influence the culture is they are raising consciousness. That's a term you'll hear them use and a term that's pretty hard to argue with. Who can be against raising consciousness? Who wants to be less conscious? What they mean by this is creating awareness of oppression. And that oppression might be real or it might be unreal. 
And then further, besides raising consciousness, is developing class consciousness. And by this, they mean identifying with a particular group, an economic class, maybe a racial group, maybe a cultural group. And so they start talking then about identity groups. By identity groups, again, we might mean Hispanic culture. We might mean your black culture, maybe your particular ethnic group, maybe your economic group, whatever it might be. But anyway, politics of identity groups. And the ultimate goal, they claim of all this, is absolute egalitarianism, in which no one is oppressing others. And that supposedly is the goal of Marxist communism as well, although it certainly has never worked that way in any country that Marxism has gotten control of. In every such country, we have seen there has been a rich elite that runs the country than the rest of the people. They might be a little more equally poor, but it has been an economic disaster everywhere it's been practiced. And also it has resulted in totalitarian thought control and mass liquidations of multi-millions of people in these communist countries, especially Russia and China, but Cambodia and other countries as well. And anyway, so the goal, though, is absolute egalitarianism in which nobody oppresses anybody else. Some have said that in capitalism, Man oppresses his fellow man. Under communism, it's the other way around. It just means that there are different oppressors and different oppressed. And if there is one absolute in woke religion, it would be that oppression is a sin. And so the ultimate virtue, then, is ending oppression and achieving equality. Now, as we seek to achieve equality... There are several principles that we need to understand, and I hope I can explain these clearly because they're complicated. The first one is what we call zero-sum game. Now, by a zero-sum game, we mean there is a fixed amount of power. In economics, we would say it means there is a fixed amount of wealth. What that means, then, is that every time you get a dollar, you've taken a dollar away from somebody else. And every time you get a little richer, you do so by making other people poorer. If you become really wealthy, then you've made somebody else really poor, or you've made a lot of people somewhat poor, because there's only a set amount of wealth. Now, economically, that is utter foolishness, because the amount of wealth can be expanded. And let's say if you as a capitalist go out and invent something and you set up a factory to manufacture it and you hire people and you produce this product and ship it out to the stores and they sell it, you are increasing wealth. And that's the way capitalism works. Likewise in culture, cultures grow and they, they spread, they magnify. But in this view, if one group has power, they've taken it away from somebody else. Now, the next thing besides zero-sum game is cultural relativism. 
By this we mean that all cultures are equal. Cultures that practice cannibalism and human sacrifice are equal to cultures that do not. Cultures that, let's say, have never invented fire or never domesticated the horse or never invented a wheel are equal to cultures that have advanced technology. And anyway, so those two terms, zero-sum game, which is a formula for no progress at all, and cultural relativism, relativism lead to another term, and this one is going to take some explanation, intersectionality. Let me repeat that word, intersectionality. Everybody has an identity, and that identity is determined by oppressor and oppressed categories, and there are many such categories. Some categories, identity groups, are oppressor. Some categories or identity groups are oppressed. And oppressors take power and wealth from the oppressed. Now, among these various categories, we've got men oppressing women. We've got whites oppressing black. We've got straights oppressing gays, rich oppressing the poor, healthy people oppressing the disabled, citizens oppressing non-citizens, Christians oppressing, well, just about everybody in their view. But anyway, so these are the various identity groups. And you have moral authority to speak out on this, depending upon what identity groups you are part of. And the more oppressed identity groups you are part of, the more moral authority you have to speak out. The fewer oppressed identity groups that you belong to and the more oppressor groups you belong to, then the less moral authority you have to speak out. Now, let's put this in plain terms. Let's suppose you are a poor, black, disabled, lesbian, alien, and atheist female. You have great moral authority to speak out against oppression because you belong to these oppressed groups. However, if you are a wealthy or even just a not poor middle class, white, healthy, straight, Christian, citizen, male, then you have virtually no moral authority, whatever. However, what really counts here is not what identity group you are biologically part of or economically part of, but what you identify with. One of our presidential candidates recently said to a black man, if you vote for Trump, you ain't black. Well, we think about Beto O'Rourke, for example, wealthy by inheritance, wealthy by marriage, and but he identifies with the oppressed, and even though he is Irish, he nevertheless takes this fake name Beto, so he's identifying with the oppressed, and he's acceptable to the left.
once again. Welcome back to Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. And Colonel Eidsmo, you are giving an excellent discourse on identity politics, something every person paying attention to current events must understand. Well, let's continue then. Anyway, we've got 10 minutes to wrap this up, and we're going to try to do it. But the basic sin, then, in woke theology is being an oppressor. Salvation is becoming woke. That is, coming to realize that you are an oppressor and becoming an ally of the oppressed classes. We do this by forsaking your privilege of being in the oppressed categories. We hear the term white privilege, but male privilege, citizen privilege, whatever you want to make it there. And anyway, to recognize the nature of prejudice itself, to recognize the nature of white privilege and how permeated, real or imagined, this is. Now, as with most false theologies, there is often a grain of truth in it. And there is racism in our society, and that's to be condemned. And there is also some racism within probably each of us that we don't recognize. But we need to be working on that and seeing it. So I'm certainly not disagreeing with that. But the idea, for example, let's just say, here's the way a woke person can put you in a dilemma and they've got you cornered either way. Just ask you this question. Are you a racist? If you say yes, well, then that proves that you're a racist. You're the enemy. If you say no, well, that just shows how racist you really are because you don't realize how permeated you are with racism. So with that question, they have you either way and you can't really answer. Now, we look to these organizations that are probably in the forefront of this in recent weeks, one being Black Lives Matter. If somebody asks me, would you say Black Lives Matter? I'll say, absolutely, I'll say Black Lives Matter. What I will not say is that all black lives, or that only black lives matter. And anyway, and I also say I will not endorse the organization, because the movement itself has its dangerous roots in critical theory, in intersectionality, in woke theology, and a great deal in Marxism. One of the problems in Black Lives Matter is much of many of their speakers and leaders reject the idea of a family, a two-person family that is a husband and wife, when in fact the main problem in black homes right now is the lack of a father figure in the homes, that very strong support for abortion within the community, even though percentage-wise far more minorities are aborted by this, anti-Semitic statements by its founders, but also the fact that it certainly seems to them that the way they speak out on these things, some black lives don't seem to matter. Unborn black lives don't matter. Black police lives don't matter. Black victims of shootings don't matter, unless they're shot by police. Black business owners who's, who've been looted don't matter, because their deaths don't support the narrative. Now, I would say even more dangerous than Black Lives Matter is Antifa, which means anti-fascist. Supposedly, this group is founded to oppose fascism, but it is actually the closest thing to a fascist organization we have in America today. Its goal is to use intimidation, including violent intimidation of supposed fascists, but actually anyone who disagrees with them. 
It's been said, and I'm not sure who said it. I've heard Reagan quoted for some similar things. I've heard George Orwell quoted for some similar statements. But there's a statement, if fascism ever comes to America, it will come disguised as anti-fascism. And I'd say Antifa is the nearest thing we've got to a fascist organization in America today, even though I would venture a guess that the vast majority of those who are out there on the streets on behalf of Antifa couldn't even define fascist if they were asked to. Well, how can we respond to what's going on here today? One of the first things I think we have to emphasize is that objective truth does exist. It can be discovered by revelation, reading God's word, and by the power of reason and evidence. And that experience is not the final word in determining what is true. In fact, if you don't believe in objective truth, well then, how could you, for example, collect mushrooms for a hobby? If you believe everything's subjective, if I think this mushroom, I think this is a mushroom, not a toadstool, therefore, for me, it's a mushroom, I'll eat it. If you follow this subjective view of truth and collecting mushrooms, you'll be dead in a week. You can't, there are some things that are just simply objectively true. Eating a barbed wire sandwich or putting razor blades in your salad is bad for you, whether you think it is or not. And I just add too, if you're going to say there are no absolutes, everything is relative, well then how can you say then that oppression is wrong? I, you're postulating that as being an absolute. And so the whole idea that there are no absolutes ultimately shoots itself in the foot in the end. Second is to emphasize that we are created in the image of God, and that is the only true basis for equality. If you believe in evolution, then what's to say that some haven't evolved further than others? But what does equality mean? It means that we are equally loved by God. It means we have the same way of salvation through Jesus Christ, which is available to everyone. It means we have the same rights under the law. It doesn't mean that we are equally capable. It doesn't mean we're equally productive. It doesn't mean we're equally virtuous or equally contributive to society, and it doesn't mean that we're equally deserving of rewards. So if we're going to be working toward racial reconciliation, several things that I would stress in doing so is, one is don't just quote statistics. Yes, if somebody's telling you, let's say if a black person perhaps emotionally is telling you, the police oppress us, the police are oppressive toward us blacks. If you present statistics about how that simply isn't true, that probably is not going to be persuasive to them because they are basing their concept of truth on experience. But how do you deal with them? First of all, try to build long-term relationships. Long-term relationships with people of other races, other classes. And when you do that, then you kind of earn the right to speak to them. And sometimes what you need to do is you need to examine yourself. Examine yourself for racial attitudes. And understand there's probably some of that in every one of us, but to the extent that we can understand it, help work and ask God to help us to purge those from our lives. Next, listen. 
listen and learn with humility. And practicing a little humility doesn't hurt any of us. We all need more of that. But listen and learn with humility, and sometimes you earn the right to speak by listening. And then ask questions. Sometimes you can become skilled at asking questions that make the speaker start thinking about what he's saying and maybe even start to question what he's saying. And I should add, too, that when you are trying to work for reconciliation and establishing relations like this, the best of all relationships is going to be through Jesus Christ. Now, the best way to lead a woke person to Christ is probably going to be through your personal testimony. You know, I teach Christian apologetics, and I emphasize in apologetics the logical arguments for the existence of God, the evidence of the resurrection, and I'll usually say that I don't really think that uh, that just testimony, experience, is probably the best proof for the truth of Christianity. But with woke people, it is probably what's going to make the most difference. You could present to them your logical arguments for the existence of God. You could present to them your evidence, which the Scripture is replete with, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they probably won't care that much about that. But when you tell them what Christ has done for you in your life, then they are more likely to listen. And it's likely to make sense with them and break through. So I'm going to say in closing, be awakened. But don't become woke. And I'm going to close with Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 14, where Paul tells us, quoting back from Isaiah, we quoted from Isaiah earlier, and Paul is quoting from Isaiah here. He says, wherefore he saith, that is, wherefore Isaiah saith, awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. And with that, we'll close. Thank you.